A quick update before you listen. This episode was released on September 26th, 2023, and recorded just before that. On September 29th, there was a development about the family at the core of the movie The Blind Side. A probate judge in Memphis terminated the conservatorship that the Tuies had over football player Michael Orr. Orr had alleged that this arrangement allowed them to reap the profits of his story without giving him his share or even actually adopting him. That judge said in her decision that she cannot believe a conservatorship was approved in the first place. Okay, back to our original episode. This is Hear Me Out. I'm Celeste Headley. You might have seen a story earlier this summer about the real-life family whose story inspired The Blind Side. Former NFL player Michael Orr has sued the Tuies, who he says have profited off the inspiring story of their white family adopting a black teen out of foster care without sharing the profits with Michael or ever actually legally adopting him. It's a complicated story, but Michael's lawsuit has still resonated with a lot of transracial adoptees. Being raised by people you aren't related to brings up a lot of questions about identity, particularly when these relationships cross racial lines. And transracial adoptees will tell you this discussion is not new. An adoption is not a heroic act necessarily, but sometimes a traumatic one. People want to think birth parents are bad, adoptive parents are good, child goes to the good place, all is well. That is just not how it works. Angela Tucker, writer and adoptee, joins us in just a moment. Stay with us. Welcome back to Hear Me Out. I'm Celeste Headley. About 3% of American families have adopted a child. That's according to a 2022 Harris poll. And obviously, 3% is a pretty small number. But think of it this way. There are around 5 million adopted children in this country. And even if you don't have an adopted child, or you don't know any adoptees, or you were not adopted, it's a topic that comes up often for a lot of Americans. More than a third of us have considered adoption at some point, according to that same Harris poll. And for the families who are impacted directly, Adoption can be very complicated. At the top, we mentioned Michael Orr, whose life and adoption story inspired the movie The Blind Side. And the way that story has played out is, you know, admittedly an an extreme example. But for many adoptees, there are similar sentiments of feeling used, of feeling objectified, of feeling othered, even if their adopted parents love them very much. So today, let's talk about adoption. Our guest today argues that All adoption causes trauma, but the damage from transracial adoption is on a whole other level. Angela Tucker is a writer, a consultant, and a transracial adoptee, and she joins us now. Hello there. Hi. So for those who don't know you, tell us what you do. I do a lot of things, um, but newest thing is uh, my new book called You Should Be Grateful, which came out in April of this year. I'm really proud of it and excited But I also do a lot of mentoring. I run the Adoptee Mentoring Society where I mentor other adoptees. And any way that I can talk about adoption through educating at conferences or working with agencies, I love and take every opportunity basically to offer the adoptee perspective on all things relating to adoption. And you should be grateful the book that you just mentioned is about um, the, the the subtitle is Stories of Race, Identity, and Transracial Adoption. It is about exactly what we're going to be talking about today. So maybe you could tell me your argument in a nutshell. What is it that you're saying here? One of the 
biggest points that I'm trying to make is that through media, you know, movies, books, pretty much everywhere, we typically hear the adoptive parents' perspective of adopting. It isn't too common for the adoptee's perspective or a birth parent perspective. So my main objective is to try to interject that piece. And when we do that, we can kind of challenge and change the harmful fairy tale narrative that adoption is just good and all adoptees need to be saved and rescued and they have better families. I absolutely, I, I actually have a really wonderful family. I'm really close to my adoptive parents. They're, they adopted seven of us, most through foster care, one internationally. And even one of the points that I try to make is even with loving, caring, adoptive parents, the trauma of being separated from our first parents cannot just be overwritten with that. And that's really a tough message for many people to hear. It's it's kind of gray. You know, I'm not an abolitionist of adoption, but I also think it's occurring too much. So people have a hard time kind of swallowing that. So I... Uh, Understanding and laying out the fact that I am I am not adopted, I am not uh, an adopter, so I don't have first person experience with what you're talking about, and I would never, ever <laughs> argue with your own personal experience or expertise. We, I, I am going to disagree with you here. You know, not surprisingly, I hear the butt coming. Yeah, the subject of this <laughs> podcast yeah. because you know, look the. The all of the research that we have on adoptees, and there's actually been quite a bit of research even on transracial adoptees, shows that the outcomes behaviorally, neurologically, physiologically, um, by whatever measure uh, you use, whether it's success through income, success through longevity of life, the child who's adopted is going to end up doing better in life than the child that ends up in foster care and aging out of foster care. Not completely true. There are new research that talks about how many adoption disruptions are happening, meaning people who are adopted are then rehomed. And Reuters did this huge investigation on that. It's kind of like the black market. And that is a real rampant issue, as well as the American Academy of Pediatrics, which found that one in four adoptees who seek therapy are attempting suicide. So there are the metrics that we're using are, are tricky because absolutely I feel like the success as termed by kind of American capitalism, I have attained, you know, and I absolutely know that if I stayed with my biological family who my birth mother was poor and homeless I, I would not be doing this work that I'm doing. However, the immeasurable aspects of loneliness, the isolation, the things that we see more in the mental health field is um, is really high for adoptees. So, I mean, I, th I mean, first of all, I feel like you have to make sure that you're comparing apples to apples. I mean, because first of all, suicide rates for everybody have du have nearly doubled in the past 10 years or so mm -hmm. for especially among young people mm -hmm. um and and so it doesn't surprise me at all that you're talking about one in four because 
more than 20% of all American teenagers have seriously considered suicide. uh, And the the American Psychological Association said that was just between the the years of 2000 and 2018. Um, And the other thing was, I I looked through the the database of research in at the National Institute of Health. And I want to just quote a couple things here. One was a meta analysis, which I don't need to tell you is, you know, it's our kind of our gold standard where they're just looking through all of the studies that we have. And they say, the current research on psychological outcome, racial, ethnic identity development, and cultural socialization suggests transracial adoptees, both domestic and international, are psychologically well-adjusted, exhibit variability in their identity development, and along with their parents, engage in a variety of cultural socialization strategies to overcome, and they said to overcome the difficulties of transracial adoption, which nobody says don't exist. Everybody says transracial adoption can be difficult and challenging. Right. Yes. And another another one, and then I'll, I'll let you come in, I just want to quote one more which was yet another uh, review of studies, said, while there's been debate over the issue of transracial adoption, my study ascertains a healthy ethnic identity and social-emotional adjustment is very much possible. The results indicate socioeconomic status has a positive impact, not surprisingly, again. Yeah. But the, the result is that the transracial adoption does not impact their outcome in the long term. Um, but... If you look at outcomes for kids who are in foster care, brought, written broadly, we're not talking about individuals. Right. That that the adoptee, again, on average, not looking at specific individuals, has as a better chance. Absolutely. I agree with that if we're comparing it to foster care, which we have so much data about the difficult yeah. outcomes. However, for myself and many other people, that's not exactly the place we're comparing it. We're comparing it to staying with our biological family. And we can't measure that because we were removed from them. We're not with them. And there's not a lot of studies on people who lost their kids to adoption, but to the family reunification and family preservation movement is what we are suggesting, not that we stay in foster care. I hear that a lot when people uh, are asking me about my perspective, and they say things like, would you rather have languished in foster care? And that is not the argument. I absolutely think that I have had a lot of positive experiences being adopted, have a great family. All of that is true. And some of the successes we have are because of our forced assimilation needs and really high people pleasing. So yeah, I think there's a lot of really successful adoptees. That doesn't negate the fact that if we were to have stayed with our first family, stayed within our culture, that perhaps that may have allowed for a different life, not necessarily better. See, that's a that's a um, a slightly different argument, I guess, than I I thought you were saying at first, because that's a that's a whole different issue, right? That's not really a to me. That's about our is American society too. Um, aggressive in taking children away from families. Is that what you're saying? That that we are? Yeah. Yeah. I do think that we're adopting children because of issues like poverty, which I don't think should be a reason for an adoption to be had. Um, yeah. I'm absolutely not comparing it to staying in an impermanent place like foster care. It's more that the 
Um, I talk a lot to social workers. When CPS intervenes, it isn't always necessarily a case of this child needing to be put in a stranger's home in another state, but that the family may have needed more support to stay together. I mean, on this point, I I fully agree with you, especially since it's so racialized. I mean, um, um, indigenous people uh, are nearly three times more likely to lose parental rights than white people and African-Americans, as I'm sure you know, are two and a half times more likely to lose their parental rights than white parents are. And that I fully agree with. But I feel like you're not saying that there are there are plenty of justified cases in which children are removed from dangerous and unhealthy situations. There are plenty of justified situations. However, we think about like Jessica Price, who did this work in Nassau County in New York around the removing race as a factor for child placement CPS investigation. And in Brooklyn, in Nassau County, when they removed the zip code and race from these cases, the kids were not removed as often. So the the idea being the implicit biases of social workers, of people who are called mandated reporters, really skew towards Black and brown families aren't parenting the way that white supremacist nuclear model says that we should be parented, and therefore they're being removed from the home. So I do believe that it's too high. And bottom line is that poverty is not an indicator of your parenting abilities. So yeah, the the idea that we are, we believe that predominantly white heterosexual and same-sex couples will be better parents for the black and brown kids is at the root of a lot of transracial adoptions, and that is problematic. So we're going to have to take a break here, but I want to take on that idea um, first of the idea of um, transracial adoptions being motivated by the idea that the white parents will be better. So let's come back to that in just a moment. But first, we'll take a break. Uh, We're talking to Angela Tucker about whether or not adoption is an overall good in most cases (laughs) and whether transracial adoption especially um, should be entered into with a lot more caution. Uh, This is Hear Me Out. I'm Celeste Headley, and we will be back in just a moment. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So, first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, Cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. 
Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. Gay rights now! With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back. We're back. I'm Celeste Headley. This is Hear Me Out, a podcast from Slate. And today we're talking about adoption. Specifically, should there be fewer adoptions in the United States? And should there be fewer transracial adoptions specifically? And before we went to the break, Angela, you said that um, there's this idea that white parents will be better parents than um, black parents. And I look, <laughs> I'm sure that's true, that a lot of people believe that. There's no getting away from the unconscious bias. You know, United States is a very racist place. And um, there are all these stereotypes of of black families that are absolutely untrue, of welfare queens that are completely based on nothing except for Ronald Reagan's imagination. On the other hand, there has been a push in recent years to try to get uh, white families to adopt more black babies, um, mo- mainly because African-American children, perhaps for the reasons we were just talking about, end up languishing in foster care. They're seven times less likely to get adopted than um, kids who are not African-American. And when they end up aging out of a foster care system, it's it, the outcomes are not great often are not great for those kids. And so there has been a push on the part of government institutions, even nonprofits, to try to encourage some of the families who are looking to adopt to adopt African-American kids. Um, And so I have to assume that that's part of the reason why there has been an uptick in adoptions of, of black kids. So just being crystal clear, I do not believe that Kids in foster care, staying in foster care, are better off than kids being adopted. Never yeah, believe. Yeah, that. you said that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I'm not quite as familiar with uh, the push for white people to be adopting black and brown kids. I actually know the Multi Ethnic Placement Act of 1994. One of the stipulations of that law says that agencies need to do more to recruit black and brown families to become adoptive parents. Unfortunately, it's a really unenforceable aspect of this law. And so a lot of agencies are like, we just can't find them. We don't know how to do it. And what one of my arguments is that with the generational harm that your agency has done t- in taking the, all of these black and brown kids, it's not an easy sell for these folks to come in. Even middle class nuclear black families, all the same stats that people love um, and think that will make a child be able to thrive and feel safe. Even with all those things the same, agencies 
in order to really recruit black and brown families to formally adopt, because they are informally taking care of a lot of our kids, but to formally adopt means changing a lot of our systems. And that is something that hasn't they haven't been willing to do, meaning a home study requirement. It's, you know, the process where basically a family is investigated to make sure they're safe coming into their home. When I've talked to middle class black folks, they've said, we don't really feel safe having a usually a white social worker come into our home and tell us if this is a safe place or not because of the history. And so those things actually have to change before we can get to a place where more black and brown families are even in the pool. I mean, it's there. It's really rare. It's pretty rare for a white family to adopt a, a black kid. The, I mean, the, the, it's like one in four of adoptions in the U.S. are transracial. And the vast majority of those, the top countries of origin were the Ukraine, China, South Korea, Colombia and India. The number of transracial adoptees where it was a white family adopting an African-American kid is relatively low. Um, and I know that they that one of the reasons why they've been pushing is because, as I said, when Black kids end up in the foster care system, which, as we agree, happens too often. Um, I, I totally agree with you that many of those kids should not be taken away from their parents and they would be better off with their parents. Um, but there they are in the foster care system and they stay there yeah. because, uh, you know, the vast majority of people who adopt are white families and they they don't adopt black kids. And it, it worries me sometimes that to have any kind of discouragement to those families to adopt those kids. I mean, I well, would want to encourage them. Yeah, no, I mean, we. I work with families day in and day out who are really wonderful, loving parents, but they are raising their kids in racial isolation. And we want to stop this. You know, it's similar to 1972 position statement from the National Association of Black Social Workers, who did not say that they didn't feel like white people couldn't like care for and love black kids. They thought, yeah, definitely. But they can't imbue all the things that are needed to succeed in this racialized environment that we're in. And that is part of what I work with white adoptive families who have black kids around that they need to be socialized by with people who look like them. And that is oftentimes a really big moment of pushback. You know, there's families in Utah raising black kids. There's I've talked to so many um, and that that fear that they have of feeling like they'll never fit in. They don't belong. That's really big. So I do agree with you at the this moment that if we have a pool of more white families willing to adopt the black kids that are coming into care, that they, sure, we can adopt them, but then there needs to be different parenting, less colorblind parenting afterwards. And I work on that as well. So it's there's so many issues within. I mean, I cannot allow for us just to remain here saying it's just too bad that there's this um, difference of race within child welfare, that's actually something we can work on. I loved talking with one white family who fostered a black kid for a while, and then he became legally free to be adopted. And 
instead of when the social workers called and said, do you want to adopt him? They said, we love him, but we'd like you to try to work hard and find a kin, fictive kin, somebody that's been in his life, teachers, whomever, a black person. And the agency did that. They were able to find them. And that white family is still in the kid's life, which I think is really healthy and necessary. But he was able to be adopted by somebody who knew him well. And sometimes it's a matter of the agency is not looking. I mean, I think this is all true, but this is, sounds to me um, like what you're really arguing for is a whole slate of reforms to both the adoption and the foster care system. These all sound like... Uh, reform proposals like a we need reforms to make sure that um black and brown people and pretty much anybody isn't losing their kids to poverty like frankly the fact that we can leave a kid in the house of like a white supremacist and we don't find that to be <laughs> an unfit parent yeah but take somebody right. away because they can't pay their electrical bill that to me right. is offensive but so that's a reform. And, and the fact that, you know, if you're, there is going to be a transracial adoption, I would agree. Like they should have, you know, have to go through a period. I mean, they should have to go through a training program. They should have resources which at their disposal. at this point they don't because of the Multi-Ethnic Placement Act, which makes it illegal for any agency that receives federal funding to mandate training on race before a family adopts. So, yeah, that is, is the MEPA law is one that a lot of us are working to get changed. Yeah. So, I mean, all of that would seem to be fine to me. I mean, I think that what what worries me when you say things like there should be fewer adoptions is I just think about all those kids in foster care. Yes. I don't, I don't want them to stay in foster care. <laughs> I want those kids to find permanent homes. Partly, another aspect of the issue is that many of the adoptions aren't happening in foster care. So they're happening private, yeah. domestic, infant adoptions. This is those people who are adopting newborns who have not been in foster care, who uh, those people don't want to adopt a foster child. So part of the totally. issue doesn't have even anything to do with race so much. It's more the idea that older children aren't really wanted. People want a newborn baby. That's the that's part of the languishing. It's a totally different issue. And I work hard on that too. But usually I'm stopped with people who say, back to the age-old theory that a blank slate exists, that if I only adopt a child at newborn, then we'll be able to mold them and shape them. But if I adopt a child from foster care, they're already too damaged. So that is a different issue. Yeah, absolutely. And again, we have found a point of agreement here. I mean, I have, <laughs> there's a certain amount of ignorance that fuels this idea that a baby is somehow uh, more likely to to fit into your family and more likely to love you, I guess. Right. And fit into the family. Right. So that's, that's, there are so many tentacles to the argument that make it tricky to have a coherent conversation because um, there are all these outliers. You know, I think about international adoptions from, like you said, Russia, even if they're not black or brown kids, the issue is is also there that 
many people are adopting internationally to avoid having to be in contact with a family, a first family, the biological family. And so to me, that goes back into this idea that white American exceptionalism is better for a child. And I don't believe that. Okay, so in these couple of minutes before we take another break, let's go back to the original argument um, that there's too many adoptions. For me, again, that frightens me because there are so many children in foster care. Yeah. Your response, of course, is that the, a, a lot of these adoptees aren't getting kids out of foster care. Um, could I then alter uh, your opinion and say there's too many adoptions that are not of foster children? Yes. <laughs> I'm with you on that. I, I wish that people would choose to adopt from foster care. There's 400,000 kids in care. Yes, And so I many. do a lot of work to try to help local communities recognize that those kids are your neighbors, you know, rather than the us versus them or the feeling like those kids are somewhere else. You know, no, they're, they're right there. Okay, well... Uh, great. We're going to take a break. I, it's, sometimes it's a surprise when, you know, we reach a, a, a point of agreement. But we will take another break. Uh, this is Hear Me Out. And we were talking about adoption with Angela Tucker. We will be right back. I'm Celeste Headley. Stay with us. And we're back. Thank you so much for being with us. This is Hear Me Out, a podcast from Slate. I'm Celeste Headley, and we were talking about all things adoption today with Angela Tucker, whose original opinion was there are too many adoptions going on. But just before the break, I added a caveat that Angela agreed to, which there are too many adoptions of kids who are not in foster care. Right? I mean, we agreed on that. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's a lot of adoptions that are private, newborn, which technically means, you know, that a woman who's pregnant is choosing to make this placement. I think there's still a lot of issues there. And that ind- that domestic infant side of adoption operates a lot like supply and demand industry. And there's so, yes, if we're not talking about that and talking specifically about foster care and the 400,000 children that are in the system that need care, the transracial aspect still is important to be considered. Let me add this piece. I am not saying that same race adoption is always better or should always take place. But? Period. (laughs) We have a lot of, um, I think in the baby scoop era, there was a lot of white folks who adopted white babies. This was 60s, 70s. And they didn't tell their kids they were adopted, right? They loved the fact that they could pass. And so a lot of those folks didn't know they were adopted till they were 20, 30. And that is so harmful. So not saying that always happens, but I do think there can be cases where transracial adoption isn't harmful. And that is when the adopters are really aware of their own whiteness and how that plays out, that they outsource some of the duties of parenting so that the child has someone that looks like them doing some of the parenting work. This is more my philosophy around collectivist parenting that I think is actually really helpful, specifically when kids are adopted outside their race. 
So the one thing I do have experience with, Angela, is a, is a wildly dysfunctional family and a, a completely unfit parent. Um, and I will say that in general, I think a collectivist approach is a healthier approach, period. Like, I just feel like there need to be more people involved in child rearing done. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. you know. We don't need all things to fall on two parents or one parent. No. And yeah. I, there's, you know, I can't dis distinctively say that if we were to follow the African tradition uh, that it takes a village to raise a child, uh, that wouldn't happen. But I have to assume that it would be better. So here's another point of agreement. <laughs> I feel like we're finding more points of agreement than disagreement here. <laughs> um, but the one thing I will say is that not knowing anything in, and from first experience about the adoption experience, and I have to imagine that it's it's troubled, a thought occurs to me that, you know, parenting is troubling. Yeah. I mean, it's like there's no such thing as a uncomplicated situation in which it's not fraught, where there's not the possibility for Issues of identity and, you know, a, a child who ends up to be trans, who is sure. traumatized by parents who are cis and hetero yeah. or whatever it may be. Yeah. Um, and it may just be that the United States is just not very good at preparing people to parent. I can't argue with that, but I would only say that adopting or adopting transracially, adopting a child who's had previous harm complicates it more right of and course. when you adopt a child and we'll stick to the foster care aspect here that means you're you're now responsible to include that child's extended family within yours if you know them and that is one area of difficulty because of power differentials that are usually inherent classism differences and then the fact that these the white parents have legal authority over the child so they can decide if and when the child should be able to see the the other their birth family or not those parts of adopting do complicate the already difficult parenting process the things that we know that are helpful for adoptees to know where we came from to know our history to understand why we were separated those are things that aren't always being done because parents find it's too hard to tell my kid that they were, you know, abused in this terrible way. It's too difficult for me to bring them to jail to spend time with their birth father. So we're not going to do it. The long term impacts for the adoptee is not good when we don't know those truths. And that's a big, a big assignment that an adoptive parent is responsible to do. Is there a way that we, I mean, how do you get this message across, this this urgent need for reform in this system without discouraging people from both adopting, especially adopting from foster care, and especially adopting black and brown kids who are disproportionately part of the foster care system and disproportionately likely to remain in the foster care system and never find a permanent home? My strategy, one of them has been like, a film that I'm in, which shows my search for my birth parents. It's called Closure, and it it's old now. It's been out for a decade, but 
it shows my adoptive parents supporting me in this journey. And when I show up at different places speaking and my adoptive parents are there and they talk positively about my birth mother, that whole image seems to help lower the temperature, the emotions where people are like, okay, she has a relationship with her adoptive parents. They support her. And she also wishes she could have stayed with her birth parents who's over there. Like seeing the full picture together is one strategy that I have. Otherwise, yeah, people do tune me out and think that I hate all adoptive parents or I hate my parents, which is not true. <laughs> right. Um, not true at all. Or they think that I am have a utopia vision that my birth mother could have done all these things when and that's not true either. So the message the reason I feel like it's difficult to get this message out is because our society really likes black and white thinking. And this issue is gray, just the yeah. bottom line. People want to think birth parents are bad, adoptive parents are good, child goes to the good place, all is well. That is just not how it works. Yeah. I mean, what does work like that? <laughs> I wish something in my life would work like that and be that simple. So, I mean, do you have children? I don't. I love mentoring lots and lots of adoptees. And that's where I put all my effort towards this kind of collectivist sort of family rearing that I really, really believe in. I mean, I ask because I wonder if it ever crossed your mind whether you would adopt, if you ever thought about that possibility. My husband and I foster older kids in our home. Transracially? My husband is white. I am black. <laughs> so, so you've got a good number of uh, kids covered. Well, it's not just about the race, but it's about our openness to understanding that that and embracing, celebrating the children's race who we've fostered. Okay. And how did you learn to do that? Through all of this work I've done it. <laughs> Through my work, I think. But you know, if we adopt a child, are we fostering a older child, keeping them connected to their culture and community is of the utmost importance. And we know that we alone can't do that. So yeah, that is really important. But yeah, we choose to foster older children who don't always want to be adopted, but want care. Like foster care means that they are in the custody of all of us, our kids. Oh, that's such a great way to think about that. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great way to think about that. So that was a lively discussion, and I would bet many of you have opinions on this, whether you are an adoptee, whether you've adopted a child, or if you have no personal connection to this at all. You can share your thoughts by emailing them to us. It's hearmeout at slate.com. Last week, we had Joe Plinsler on the show. He made the case for bringing back the draft. We got a lot of emails from you about this. So before we go, we want to share one we received from a listener named Lauren. Lauren wrote this. I found the guest's arguments very interesting, and I agree with a lot of his points, such as closing the chasm between everyday Americans and wars by giving more citizens skin in the game, especially lawmakers and their families. One point that I wish Celeste had brought up or asked about, what does military service look like when someone is doing it potentially against their will? Could mandatory service compromise sensitive materials slash information? What is the expectation for the quality of service from drafted individuals? Good point, Lauren. I didn't even think about that, whether or not we would be 
harming or weakening the military by bringing in reluctant or resentful soldiers, but it's a good question. Keep bringing them on. That email is hearmeout at slate.com. Hear Me Out is a podcast from Slate. The show is produced by Maura Curry. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations. And Alicia Montgomery is VP of Slate Audio. I'm your host, Celeste Headley. Until next time, speak your mind, but keep it open. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails, there ain't no going back.